On today's episode of After the Battle Campfire, I talk with my good friend Kelly Ryan. She is a former Navy intelligence officer and a world-class triathlete. Her career was cut short after an accident, and we talk about how she's handling life after the Navy, what inspired her to join the Navy in the first place, and what she's doing now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. So here we are today with my good friend, Kelly Ryan. Um, I met Kelly back in January at a Navy Wounded Warrior camp, uh, where I believe that myself and Jules, our mutual friend, and probably everyone mm-hmm. else were patient zeros for COVID because we flew in and out of LAX. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. I forgot about that. Right when COVID All of it was, was kicking off. Yeah. In LA. I, <laughs> I don't know if you heard the story. So Jules and I, uh, well, we were waiting for all you guys to come in because we all flew in on uh, different flights. Uh, yeah. We got hungry. So we took off and the only place that we knew of that you could get food outside of passing through security was the international terminal. We happened uh-huh. to be eating at a little Chinese food place <laughs> right next to the Cathay Pacific uh, entrance. <laughs> So yeah, Jules and I are are convinced we probably were patient zeros. (laughs) (laughs) Well, seems like most of us made it made it out alive. (laughs) Yeah, which is probably a good thing, I think. So that was crazy. Thank you for coming on, and I think people are going to get a kick out of your story. Oh my gosh! (laughs) What part? The whole thing from what little I know, which I hope to learn more um, that you can talk about, uh, should be interesting. So uh, let's okay. go. Let's start at the very beginning. So when you were little baby Kelly, did you always have an inkling? Oh, God, to go I don't into, know. Did you always have an inkling to go back into the military? Like, did you have a military family or? No, not at all. No. Uh, my dad, my dad was a cop in Hawaii. Uh, my mom ran the family business and I was born and raised on a, on a horse ranch, um, on the Island of Oahu. So I had a lot of military friends and military influence because there's a very big, like all, all branches of service, um, have a fairly significant presence on Oahu, but, but yeah, I had not really anyone in the military in my family. My my grandfather served in World War II um, many, many, obviously many years before I was born. And that that's it. Wow. Okay. So um, I'm like the black sheep of the family. <laughs> it could be a good thing or a bad thing. So <laughs> growing up on Hawaii, what was that like for you on a horse ranch at that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing and uh, interesting and a kick in the teeth. That's for sure. Um, so every everybody, you tell people you're from Hawaii and they're like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. And then they start, you know, if they've been there, they start listing like all the touristy things that they've done. And that's when I like get the blank look on my face and I'm like, I've never done any of that because I was born and raised there and I never, I was never a tourist. <laughs> you, you, you never, um, you never went to Diamond Head and did the whole hike up Diamond Head uh, or go to the Missouri Memorial or any of the fun touristy stuff. 
I, I, I dropped out there for a second. Oh no, I was just, sure. I, I was just saying you, so you, you never did the diamond head hike or any of that stuff. Um, I did, I did hike diamond head a couple of times as an adult. And then I started, I did some hiking, um, actually when I went back and was stationed there after, um, so I, I guess backtracking a little bit, the way I ended up in the Navy was I first, I married a sailor. Um, oh. and then I was like, well, I can't beat him. So I guess I'll join him. And, uh, you know, I kept like moving every one to two years. And I was like, my career is not going the direction I wanted it to go, um, as a, as a Navy wife. And, um, and honestly, I, I had thought about going into the Intel community, uh, while I was still in college because I, I studied political science. Um, and so, yeah, it was like, oh, well, I guess I'll, <laughs> I guess you'll go I'll that join way. the Navy then. <laughs> so were you, I guess, growing up on a horse ranch, I'm trying to think of the area. So obviously you were nowhere inside the city limits of Honolulu. No, uh, no. Did, but I spent a fair amount of time on that side of the island. Um, I actually went to Hawaii Pacific University. That's where I graduated college from. Okay. And that's right in downtown Honolulu. Okay. I was going to ask in um, high school because of and we'll get into it in a bit, your athletic background. Did, were you athletic in high school and in college? Uh, I didn't do formal, like organized sports for, for the most part. Um, I grew up on the back of a horse and riding and, and competing in a sport called dressage, which is like the English style of horseback riding where they, you know, prance around in an arena with top hat and tails on and, and, and very precise. Like we equate it to the ballet of, of horseback riding. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So that was most, most of my life. And then as a teenager, I started um, paddling outrigger canoes, uh, which is a big sport in Hawaii. And so I, that was my like organized team sport was I paddled. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what year was, were you, what year did you graduate high school? I'm trying to date you because I know I'm older than you. <laughs> uh, I graduated in 2000. Okay. So you were in college on nine 11 then. Um, I was, yep. I was in junior college, uh, and I had class that morning. In fact, I had religion class. It was my first class that morning. Oh, which wow. was very interesting. Yeah. Very sombering. Uh, I don't even want to, well, there is a curiosity part of me that wants to know what religion you were happened to be studying at that point in time. I'm not sure. I don't know that I remember. We definitely th talked about um, the Muslim faith that day though. And, uh, and I remember the professor was, was, was very upset, you know, and was, uh, because at that point, it was pretty early on after the Twin Towers that um, the the name Al-Qaeda started getting uh, getting circulated in the media. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it seems like it was at least from my recollection, it seemed like it was pretty early on that um, that they picked up that 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 got out of the Intel channels. And yeah, I want to say it was almost in the media. Almost the same day, if not a couple days, within a couple days. Yeah, I'd have to go back and research. But we definitely talked about the Muslim culture that day. And um, 
and how, you know, extremism was not, was not a characteristic of, of, of that culture. Um, and we continue to talk about that obviously for months after and years after. That's right. Cause I just remembered that, uh, you guys are what? Five hours behind West coast. Yeah. Five, usually five. We don't do Hawaii doesn't do daylight savings time. So from West coast, it's either four or five, depending on what time of year it is. Cause I think it was, I know it was like six 30 in the morning. Cause I was in California at the time when it happened. So it mm-hmm. happened in the middle of the night for you guys. Well, it happened. So we were a really early rising household. Um, so everyone was out of bed. Like everyone is, was up and running by about five o'clock in the morning. And, uh, my dad had, um, was kind of the first one of all of us up and we, you know, we never turned the TV on in the morning. And I I remember waking up and walking out of my bedroom. My dad was standing there in front of the TV and I was like, Oh my gosh, like what's going on. And then, you know, it was really the, the hardest part of that morning for me, uh, I just re- remember being at a stoplight and bawling my eyes out um, was, you know, there's such a huge military presence there. And I lived fairly close to Kaneohe Marine Corps base. Oh, okay. Everyone on the Island had gotten recalled. It was getting called on, uh, getting called into work. No one knew what was going on. So the traffic anywhere near a military base, really all over the entire Island was insane and it was everyone trying everybody who's living out on the economy out on the economy like we're living overseas but (laughs) you know what i mean that everyone was living off base um sprinting into work and uh obviously like the sight of the twin towers falling was impactful but i will never forget the feeling of like uncertainty and because I, w- I wasn't active duty at the time yet, but the, the fear for everyone I knew that w- that was in the military and the fear for our country and what was, what was going to happen um, from then on. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's also true that you were literally living on the place where the last big attack had happened on American soil too. Mm-hmm. So there was probably mm-hmm. a lot of people making those two connections too. How did, uh, how did yeah. that work with your dad being a cop or a police officer? Did he, did so my dad they... was retired by then. Oh, okay. Okay. I was like, did they get yeah, called so... back? But obviously since he was retired. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how HPD handled it. Um, my dad was, my dad was retired and he actually went back to, we may have been in school together at the time, actually, because he went, he went back to college after retiring as a cop and, and went through, got his bachelor's degree and then got his law degree. Oh, wow. um, and so there was a period of time where I was at junior college, which in 2001, I, I was, I was at a community college uh, where my dad and I had classes together (laughs) how awkward was that (laughs) it was probably more it was definitely awkward for me and comical for him (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy 
So did 9-11 push you at all towards maybe opening your mind to do the military thing? Or was it purely the relationship and... No, it was not purely the the relationship. Um, I was so at the time I was majoring in uh, or I was planning to to major in kinesiology uh, and go become a physical therapist. And it was at, at about that time where I changed my major to political science and ended up uh, going that direction. And I, I toyed with the idea of going to law school. Um, but ultimately what I, what I really wanted to do was, was intelligence in some capacity. Oh, okay. So you met your husband at some point in time mm-hmm. or ex-husband, I'll say. Yep. And ex-husband, ex-husband. Yeah. <laughs> o or E? Uh, so he was enlisted. He was a machinist mate, a nuclear, nu- nu- wow, nuclear, uh, nuclear machinist mate on submarines. And then um, after we were married for like a little bit over a year, um, you know, we were getting ready to move again. And I was like, oh, here we go again. Because um, at the time I was training horses, I was basically following his career around and doing the same work that I had been doing my whole life. So not using my degree and not happy about that. And, um, and like, it was, it was kind of during a heated argument actually one night. And he was like, well, why haven't you joined the Navy yet? And I was like, why haven't I joined the Navy yet? (laughs) So were you, (laughs) and I was at OCS within like three months. (laughs) So I was going to say, were you already out of school then? Yeah. Okay. So I, I had graduated, I had graduated, moved away from home with him because of course he PCS, um, got married, had a kid and then was like, I'm going to join the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) So where was your, uh, where was your guys's first off Island duty station? Cause I know subs and there are some pretty cold places that they can go for an Island person. Cold. Yeah, like yeah. Bremington. You're telling me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's exactly where we got stationed. <laughs> and yeah, I went from Hawaii to Bremerton, Washington and was and thought I was going to die. <laughs> I thought I was going to freeze to death. I was pretty sure of it. <laughs> oh, that place gets really cold from what I hear. The, um, so it was, it was better. <laughs> so let's continue with your career. So you go to OCS. Where did you end up going to OCS at? Uh, Rhode Island. So another nice Nimitz hot place. Hall. One of those yeah. super hot and humid places, right? Like Florida. Well, oh, in no. the summertime. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I have family in Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah. So and, I got there in April again, freezing to death from Texas. Cause we were stationed in Texas at that time. And I was like balmy and you know, happy where, in Texas. Were you guys in Corpus or Kings or yeah, uh, Corpus? So he ended up, so he went through state 21. So from Washington state, we went to Austin, uh, where he was a recruiter and then he got selected for state 21, um, and did state 21 at UT, and then that's where I joined the Navy from. So my Homer record has always been 
Austin, Texas. Oh, cool. So if you ever come over here, you can use your Hazel. I think it's your Hazelwood Act once you blow through your GI Bill. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he In did. Fact, be- that was very high on the poss- possibilities. <laughs> so he, uh, I take it, he went off to become an officer then through Stay Twenty One. Yeah, because that, that's an enlisted yep. to officer. Com- I'm trying to remember it. It's. I, yep. I know the I know the medical side's it's better. A- it's okay. It's a it's the enlisted to officer uh, commissioning program where they send you to college for three years, um, and you're part of the ROTC unit at that university. And then when you get out um, of college, you're commissioned. And so you're he still, was a commissioned as a he. Was, go ahead. I was going to say you're still technically active duty, and you're still getting paid as the pay grade that you mm-hmm. were. Okay. I believe you get paid as an E5, regardless of what you were before. I can't remember that. I don't remember that one. Okay. Uh, It may be the same rank, actually. You might might be right. I may be mixing it up with some of the shenanigans from the GI Bill. Yeah, because I was going to say, I'd have a really hard time seeing a chief go through that program and taking a two pay grade hit. (laughs) So you get up to to Rhode Island. You're... uh, Enjoying the super hot weather, uh, shorts and t-shirt all the time. <laughs> Actually, April, it's not that Poopy bad. suits yeah. and poopy suits and metal, like, <laughs> I don't remember the, like, covers. It was awful, awful things that they used to make us fill with sand. <laughs> so you actually... Ironically, uh, you and I both have this background with the Navy Wounded Warrior Adaptive Sports Program. One of the mm-hmm. coaches who was also a Navy Wounded Warrior Adaptive Sports Program, I, if I remember right, you went to OCS with her, right? I went to OCS with her, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry. We went to into baby intel school together. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. So Yeah, wh- I, would th- I think I was a little ahead of her in, um, in OCS. So what was the process of actually going to get from civilian Navy wife to stepping foot in OCS? I, I've never asked anyone that question because you are actually the first so, officer. Oh, I am? Yeah. <laughs> oh, here we go. Um, so let's see. I had to, um, hunt down my recruiter because they don't have quota. They don't have as many, uh, their quota isn't as high as the enlisted recruiters are. So I, I basically had to like hunt her down and do all the paperwork and like make it happen. Because what I, what I learned about officer recruiters is is like, it's pretty easy for them to eat to to meet their quota. So if you want to, if you really want it, you have to work for it. So I um, got through all of that. I had to do my PRT and everything, which I was already um, I was already doing triathlons. So just the push ups were 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 a challenge because I have big, long, skinny arms. But um, and then I uh, let's see. I think I signed my SF-86 and all the paperwork for my um, enlistment and uh, security clearance in, I want to say, maybe November, and I had a class update in April. Um, And so I classed up, I think, April 10th, um, and then it's three months at OCS. So the first two months, you're you're, kind of treated like a 
at a different rank in three different stages. Um, so you're uh, uh, officer candidate and then a candidate officer um, for the last stage. When you're an officer candidate, you're like learning all the basics um, and doing, you know, all the PT and everything. In your last month, when you're a, a candidate officer, uh, you get to put on the khakis for the first time and you're in charge of running everything for the, the two to three. You froze. There you hey. go. You're back. You're back. <laughs> it's all good. Um, new, new home, no internet using the phone. That's what we'll, we'll work around this. But um, I, got, I got you. No, no, it's totally cool. I got you to where you were saying that you put on the khakis and you were in charge. I'm assuming you were going with the new set of classes. Yeah. So um, your, your last month as a in OCS, you're basically running the show for the classes below you. Um, and there's different levels of leadership and everything. And, um, each class has, so there's like four commanders. Um, and then like the, I can't remember what they call, um, everyone, but, but basically it's like a CO XO, um, and, and on down, um, for each, for each class. So I was the commander for each class, which was, um, all of the, the, guys that had been rolled out of uh, one of the other classes and was on hold either for medical reasons or, or because they didn't pass an evolution or something in order to hopefully class up with the, with the next class or a future class. So, so are, are you guys through all of that? Are you guys considered midshipmen during this? Like, are you holding the rank of a midshipman? Yeah. Okay. So you, Yes. Yeah. Within the little, like weird, tiny little anchors that you the, see the, the, the not, midshipmen from the Academy. Yeah. The, the, not the chief anchors. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The, not the chief anchors. <laughs> <laughs> um, so who ran- is actually really funny. Once you become like a, once you're on like one of the class teams, they have different, and I think they use the same rank structure at the Academy, but like the chem- commanders, have like gigantic like ones bars or something yeah. <laughs> gigantic it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah i i know exactly but, what but you're talking the bars are even smaller than ensign bars so it's like what are you <laughs> <laughs> so um who who's teaching you guys at this point in time is it officers is it uh enlisted is it everybody it's so the really the person in charge of um, training officers are Marine Corps drill instructors. Um, but each class has a, a team of one uh, naval officer, usually um, unrestricted line, like pilot or SWO, uh, Lieutenant 03, um, and then a senior enlisted, a Navy chief um, who handles all of the um, Navy education. And then, but really like you get the most face time with your senior enlisted Marine Corps drill instructors. So, um, like gunnery sergeant, yeah. I think is, is typically the rank. And, and is, yeah, face, so, is FaceTime an, a, um, euthan, a euthanism for, uh, getting yelled at? <laughs> 
For beatings, yes. Yes, beatings. The beatings <laughs> no, will commence. It's, it's beatings. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The beatings commence immediately. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> and they don't stop. <laughs> so you guys had the, like you were saying, you had the uh, the Naval Academy style rank um, insignias on your collars and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, so being here at Fort Sam while I was doing my thing here, we saw a lot of, there's the PA school. So you see... Um, Navy midshipmen type going through, they get that they're in like first classes and chiefs who get accepted into it. They fall into that weird category. Be glad that you weren't the army or the air force that had to wear their rank said OCS. They didn't have a rank just for their tab was it said OCS. (laughs) Yeah. And I think you dropped again, but you'll be back right now. There we go. <laughs> there we I, are. I can tell when you drop. <laughs> so um, <laughs> how many people, uh, what's, how am I trying to say this? How many people actually didn't make it through your class? Uh, oh my gosh. Oh, we were probably a class of like 30 or 40, somewhere in there. Gosh, this was so long ago. Um, so we started with, I can specifically speak for the the girls because we started with like three or four females. Uh, and then I ended up the only female for some time. Oh, wow. Um, and then eventually we, we also had a female drill instructor, Gunnery Sergeant Reichman. She's one of my Facebook friends, so she will see this. I love her to this day. <laughs> she can't yell at um, you anymore. She, she can. She can. <laughs> <laughs> she knows I will stay on, like, we'll stay on a straight and narrow, though, <laughs> to prevent that from happening. Um, but she was hard on us females. She was hard on all of us, but she, we got special attention. Um, and I, I, I survived. Um, but our other females ended up getting rolled into H class, um, to wait for like the next class or, or the class after that for, for, for one reason or another. And I mean, the, the beatings were, were legit. Um, but Uh, we have like three or four sand pits around, or we used to, they're in a different building in Rhode Island now, but the old Nimitz hall used to have sand pits kind of all over, all over the place. And so they would just run us from sand pit to sand pit and just like make us really miserable. (laughs) Um, you're, you're saying, yeah, I want to say maybe like 10 or so. Okay. I I was just curious because, um, you never really talk, you never really hear people talk about the attrition rate of uh, officers going through OCS. Um, I mean, you it hear, used to be pretty high. Yeah. And you hear, you hear about it, like with the academy that they, you know, a lot of people do fail out academically, but never, mm-hmm. people forget that OCS is probably the bigger feeder into the officer community than the academy. Unless that's changed. Yeah. I'm not sure what the numbers are. I'm not, I'm not sure what the numbers are. Honestly, I would guess. And ROTC is, is a huge one too, though. Um, I guess I'm kind of combining. They kind of have a completely different. Okay. I was combining the two of them that ROTC and. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. 
In that in that case, I would I would bet that they probably outnumber the the academy because I want to say the academy is maybe like a class of like four thousand or so. If I, I think year. that's even pretty. If high. that yeah. really is it, I don't like know. A, I want to. You're say asking that, hard questions that I didn't hey, research ahead of time. That's the point of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so you finally get done, and Gunnery Sergeant, uh, what was her name again? Reichman. Gunnery Sergeant Reichman <laughs> signs off and says, you're good to go. Um, she was my first salute. Yep. That's what I was going to ask. Was she your first salute? She absolutely so, was. So did you know right off the bat that you or, I'll rephrase this. A lot of people, Navy side, go in with the intention of a certain rate, like Corman, in my case. I knew boot camp, core school, and then wherever. Mm-hmm. Do they? Do, did you know uh, you were going to go the officer route? I mean, not, not the officer route, the intel route. Was that like guaranteed per contract? It was not. Um, so when you uh, when you en- when you enlist, because you initially you enlist, um, you are, uh, and I think this is true for everyone. I'm pretty sure you you do know what your designator is going to be. Uh, at that point you get selected for three. Um, so, you know, you kind of put your dream, you put, put on your application, uh, or on your package, what you want to do and you rank those. So for me, um, I put Naval flight officer, uh, and then to, to back, to back up one, it is much, much, much harder to get selected for anything that is restricted line uh, versus um, unrestricted line. So warfighter ex- versus support yeah, I was gonna support say, let's, staff. Let, let's explain that real quick. So I think it's one of the confusing things that people do not understand about the Navy. One rates mm-hmm. confuse a hell out of people, but the restricted mm-hmm. and unrestricted, because people see an ensign bar or a captain's bars and they're like, you fight and it's like not necessarily and yeah um i mean in some way shape or form you're supporting you're supporting the fight right right? um but so for the navy uh restricted line means your your support staff in in some way shape or form um so like intelligence is restricted line uh supply um things like that um, unrestricted line are hashtag operators, right? So, um, uh, pilots, surface warfare officers, you know, SEALs, EOD, yeah. EOD officers, EOD techs, um, et cetera. So initially I was selected for, I wanted to do Intel, but I, I knew that I probably wouldn't get it straight out the gate. And so my plan was to do time in an aircraft and then in the future, like five years down the line, maybe lat transfer um, or try to lat transfer into intelligence. And um, so I was selected for pilot and Navy flight, Naval flight officer. And I didn't make it through. Um, I actually, I dropped on request. I, I ended up finding that I had severe flight anxiety, um, at the controls of a, of an aircraft. I like just didn't trust myself. And we'll be right back. 
There we go. I'm back. <laughs> so I got you with you didn't trust yourself at the flight controls. Yeah, yeah. It was uh it was it was frustrating. I tried really, really, really hard to get over it. Um and I you know that that's another it um naval aviation schools is another very stressful environment. Um <laughs> for junior officers, because, you know, your, your career could very easily end at the, at a moment's notice in that environment. And, um, and so I gave it everything I had to try to get, get through this anxiety that I, I always ended up dealing with in the cockpit just because I just didn't trust myself um, to not miss a step at some point, not miss something on the checklist. How far, um, uh, how far into that training pipeline are you by the time you get in the cockpit? Uh, th- so you start, and I'm not, I think they're still doing it the same way now. Uh, it used to be that you went straight into API and you didn't touch the controls of an aircraft for, I don't know, like five, five or six months or, or so until you gotten through all the ground stuff. Uh, what the Navy found was pe- people like me had then gotten, you know, five or six months into training and then weren't, you know, w- weren't either couldn't, couldn't figure out the flying aspect of it, or, you know, had other issues like, like what I dealt with. Um, so they implemented, um, IFS, which is introductory flights, I guess school, maybe I'm not sure what, I can't remember what the S stands for, but they basically put you through your private pilot's license before classing up for API. And if you didn't make it through that and they crammed you through it, I think you had like three weeks, three or four weeks to get it done. Um, So it was like you're like crammed through a week or two of ground and then it's just flying and flying and flying and flying and flying. And then all and you're split and you have to solo your final is you have to solo. So you take off and fly and land the aircraft safely with no one there. Um, And I got got through, I got through everything. Um, but I just did not feel safe enough to, to solo. And they gave me like, I was probably one of very few students that they ever gave extra time to, um, somehow, I don't, I don't know. They, they just saw that I really wanted it and, um, was doing everything I could. So they did give me the extra time, but it just wasn't, Flying wasn't my, wasn't my thing, unfortunately. Um, so I ended up, I ended up dropping on request after a lot of soul searching and it was pretty devastating because I thought that was it. I thought I was like, they were, they were kicking you out if you didn't make it. Um, oh, make they it went, through. they went, send you like to a so route, a swo route, no. surface warfare. <laughs> Um, so that you had to go through a redesignation board and the way that it was working at the time, uh, they were, they needed to get rid of so many people. Um, but if you were Academy, um, and then secondly, if you were ROTC, the Navy had already spent so much money on you that they weren't going to just let you walk away. Right. Like they, they paid for your education. They're going to get their 
they're, they're going to get flesh. their money out of you. Yeah, exactly. And so if you were an OCS grad, it was almost certain. It was almost a done deal. If you didn't make it through API, you were going to become a civilian again. Oh, wow. And it was, that's why, you know, I was, it was so hard for me to make that decision. Ultimately it all worked out in the end. And I, um, I ended up gaining my closest mentor my entire career while I was at that command. Um, so they put me in a, in an admin position because I was going to be there a while now in the front office. Um, and, uh, I, worked my butt off running the office for the director of training, who was an Air Force colonel, Air Force lieutenant colonel. Um, And in the end, I was one of my understanding, very, very few students who got a letter of recommendation for the redesignation board from both the director of training um, of Naval Aviation Schools and the commanding officer commanding off like yeah they 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 did not do that for students because they had to they had to let go of so many students so what year was um that was probably 2000 late 2010 early 2011 oh okay okay is my guess that's right so i got redrawing down into intel through all of that yeah so as yeah. as you're going through all this, I know you are pretty a pretty active sports person or triathlete. That were you still doing that at this time? Uh, so I'd I'd put my triathlon habit on hold while I was at OCS, and then by the time I got to Florida, I'd started I'd started training uh, again. Yeah. Okay. So were you competing actively then? Um, not as much as I, as I would in the future. Uh, I just did like little races here and there, um, when I was there. And then it wasn't until I got to, um, so went from Florida to Virginia beach for Intel school. So I was in schools that whole time in in that period. And then, um, so like that being a mom and, and, and junior officer in school was really my focus. And then that's right. I totally um, forgot about that. The, yeah. the, the married mom, Kelly going oh, through right, all of this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Single momming it at that point, mind you, because how, we were not stationed in the same place. <laughs> how were you single momming going through flight school? That's crazy. Uh, so he, he did ultimate, he, he did end up joining me for a period of time in Florida uh, while I was at flight school. And then, um, when I went to Virginia beach, it was just me and her because he had to go, uh, start his first tour as an officer. And so I was in, I was a 100% single mom through Intel school, which was totally a kick in the pants. Like, (laughs) so I know I noticed, um, and this is just observationally, the female officers that I've met in my career are either in the medical side or in the intel side. Is there a draw for some reason? Or, or is there like a pu- uh, like a recruiting push to get more female intel officers? I don't know. I mean, I 
we're still, we're still only, I don't know about the medical side, but we're still a much smaller percentage of, of the force than, than our male, male counter counterparts, excuse me. Um, but I, I think part of that may be, um, now that I don't know what the percentages are. I know there are plenty of female surface warfare officers and plenty of female aviators and naval flight officers. Um, as far as other combat roles though, part, part of that, I think what goes into that is the restriction or was going into that was a restriction on, on women and, um, in combat. Yeah. Which, I mean, in my opinion, 2006, there was a bunch of women who were security vehicles running out there. Downrange. Yeah. Like when, when we called out EOD, uh, the 50 cow on EOD security was a female Marine. Yeah. Who looks like she could have fucked shit up just as well as any male could have. Yep. Yep. Across the board, hands down. There's no question in my mind. Obviously they've trusted her. That team trusted her enough to put her on the big gun. Exactly. And some of the, so I, I had the opportunity to work with EOD for a good, a good little chunk of my career. And, um, there are several female EOD techs in the Navy and EOD techs and, and EOD officers that are, you know, pull, pulling their weight just as much as their male counterparts. I, I believe um, it. But yeah, I think that's where, where part of the, maybe the perception that the percentage is higher in some of the other fields is, it might actually be higher because it's restricted line. Yeah. So what was Intel school like going, coming from an aviation background where it sounds like it's a whole bunch of hands-on stuff to now? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, remember my, my degree was in political science and that was kind of like the direction that I, that was the ultimate goal. Um, um, from the, from the get go when I joined, but, um, it just happened a few hours earlier or a few years earlier than I was expecting. Uh, but Intel school was six months in Damnick, um, of lots of time in a windowless building, a fair amount of death by PowerPoint. Um, but really kind of a fire hose of learning, just the bare minimum of what you what we needed to know about the fleet about blue forces essentially and blue force capabilities um and then a little bit about enemy capabilities and a, and a good chunk learning about the intelligence community and how how intel works and how collection works and what collection assets we have available and how to use them and how you know all all of that stuff um and lots and lots of briefing so much briefing you briefing or are you being briefed us briefing yeah so when you first start your class basically has to get give an op until brief every week, um, to all the other classes and, um, and all of the leadership and they don't hold back. Um, it's, it's a, it's a harsh audience. Uh, and they will call you out if you don't know what you're talking about, because operators will call you out if you don't know what you're talking about as they should. Yes. Um, 
yeah. So that was always really, you know, really stressful time of the week for everybody who was getting ready for that brief, getting all the, getting all the slides together and then, you know, deciding who was briefing when, and then we had to do our own individual briefs on certain things. Um, most of us chose to focus on the AOR that we were kind of, we eventually kind of knew that we were headed to. Um, so for me at that time, I knew I was headed to Paycom. So I focused on, on, um, Paycom and which is Pacific China command. and North Korea. Yeah. Yes. The, it the is giant, now Indo-Paycom. The, oh, excuse me. <laughs> so Yeah, I will never remember that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious. Uh, again, me with my background being a chief, I kind of think chiefs are the best part of the Navy that ever existed. <laughs> and that we have to keep officers in check. But um, seriously, though, did you yes, guys... Yes, you do. <laughs> did they teach you guys at all about like, hey, because I can tell you, I worked with several commands here in San Antonio on the reserve side because mm-hmm. that was my, my last technical command was uh, support at NOS San Antonio Reserve uh, Station. But they have two or three intel units that are in the general area that the reservists go drill with. Yeah. Did they give you any introduction to the enlisted mayhem that is the intel community because i still honestly could not tell you how many rates are actually directly involved i know cts <laughs> is and then cts yes. have like 20 different sub rates and it's just like they do what the hell <laughs> so did they you do. guys and now we are the information dominance core uh actually i don't think we're i think we have graduated again to uh information are, yeah, are we IW? I we're we're the information dominance core, um, and so now we have um, IPs and oceanog- oceanographers under um, the IDC as well. So is that okay? So I know there's the IDW <laughs> device, the the information Pen. dominance mm-hmm. warfare. Mm-hmm. So are the mm-hmm. oceanographers? Are these? I'm pretty up to date on rates, so I'm assuming you're talking about. Officers. Uh, yeah. So Oceano okay. is a is one is the um. What? Oh man. Oh my gosh. What is the enlisted rate? I know a bunch of them too. Uh. It's it'll come it'll come to me probably after the podcast. But yeah, we have four. We have a, like I think five different rates. Um, that fall under the the information dominance core. Yeah, it's crazy that I, yeah, one, how am I trying to say this? It's not secret, but I don't think very many people quite understand how Real, yeah, maybe realize intelligence how many, works. Yeah. So we have, um, we have Intel, obviously, and then we have the Crippies, uh, IP, which is all the computer guys, um, and then oceanographers, and am I missing somebody here? Hmm, I might be missing one. I feel like there's C, so CTs, ISs. CTs and CTs and or CTs or crippies. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. I'm I'm trying to think. Who were the are CTs? You probably it's before your time, so you probably don't know if they were the radio, the signal men and the radio men. I think those are the um, guys. I do not believe so. 
Yeah, it's it's CTs all CTs did a shuffle sometime recent, like sometime in the in years close to when I first came in. Um, but they they may have they may have been in in the in the past. Yeah, it's uh, super confusing, um, and it's probably designed to be that way. <laughs> <laughs> so did did you well where I was going with that whole question um with learning with the enlisted side at school did you guys have to interact with the enlisted side or was it just all officers teaching officers and um so we had chiefs and officers teaching our class we were in the same schoolhouse as the ISs that were going through um oh, okay. their A school um, and, and in some cases, C schools as well. Uh, but they were their own, they were their own, um, class, their own A school. And we were like our, our own, um, our own class. So we didn't have, uh, we, we may have had a, a couple first classes on our staff that were also teaching, uh, the A schoolers as well. But yeah, we were mostly taught by other, other Navy Intel officers, Oh, okay. Okay. That's what I was trying to And some chiefs, some ISCs. Okay. So you finish that class. You're now ensign or lieutenant junior grade? Uh, Ensign. And at that time I was still Veen Heist. (laughs) You don't have to say that. What a name. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So you are now officially a real life ensign. You know, you have your training, you have your designator. I was, no, I didn't have my pen yet. Well, not <laughs> your, like not, not your, not, not your warfare device, but I mean, you, you were legitimately classified as an Intel officer. Yep. That, that big butter bar was shining bright <laughs> and you were getting sent to Paycom. Went to Paycom. Yeah. Uh, so back home in Hawaii, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And my, um, my ex had been sent to a ship there. So we were put on, um, opposite sea sea shore rotations for our daughter's sake. So he was a swell. So we had to go to ship. Um, and so they sent me to Paycom and I ended up the Northeast Asia watch officer, um, for a little over a year. And then, so that's a three-year tour and they rotate you around, um, for, basically you do a year, a year in a different job because, you know, on the officer side, you're paid, paid generalist. Um, so got, you're not, not allowed to ever specialize in anything too much. Um, so yeah, so I learned my job, um, as a, as a watch officer watching mostly North Korea and a little bit, bit of like the, the Russian Pacific fleet. Um, and that was a, great first tour for an intel officer honestly um it's a little bit backwards they do typically try to send you operational first um but looking back it it really was a a good way to go because at a at a at a major intel center you're really seeing how everything works you're seeing how to task collection you're seeing where the information is going to inform your um, seeing what the, what the various operations are that are going on um, and how Intel supports those. So you really are able to kind of learn your craft at, at a big Intel center. And then I went from there to EOD, um, which was a very different 
type of work and a different um, mission, but I, I felt like I knew my job. I knew how, what Intel could bring to the table so much better because I'd had those three years at, at a big Intel center. So going back, you would say, hey, most people coming out of school should probably be dumped into a big Intel center versus being kicked as um, an Intel officer on some operational unit. Yeah, well, I I would say that I really think that that, that direction of, of a pipeline makes a lot of sense um, because I felt like I was able to support my guys so much better than if I had just come straight out of the Intel school. Yeah. Um, and that's really, that's, that's really what I, I care about and, and kind of always have, like, even when I was sitting, you know, you're sitting on a watch floor in a big office building with no windows. Um, but really my number one, um, concern was always whoever it is that's downrange that needs to see this information needs to see it right now, you know, um, cause their life might depend on it. And, um, and so for me, once I went, um, to the tactical level, that was, that's really where my heart was. Um, but it, it made a lot of sense to really understand what was available, um, in the IC to support them. Yeah. So like my, one of my last commands was a Marine recon unit. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a same reserve. I was supporting a reserve component as their pseudo uh, active duty chief. But I noticed that they only had one Intel officer and then they had like their Intel Marines. So I feel like having a mm -hmm. brand new boot, no offense, uh, Intel officer trying to- None taken. Try, trying to be the guy at that type of unit would be a shit show. Cause I think this guy was either a major or a captain and had yeah. several deployments behind him. And yeah. that was just for a reserve unit that did nothing. I mean, no offense, guys. You guys did a lot when you were deployed, but on a drill weekend, you did nothing. So, um, but, but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, trying to and and that's often that's that is kind of how it works a lot of times for us. Is uh, a lot of times our our first operational tour or our first tour out of school is something like a squadron, right? Like you're you're not just trying to learn your job, but you're trying to support operations at the same time, which I think is really, that's, it's, that's hard. I mean, yeah. um, yeah. And really what matters is that, is that the operators are, have the information that they need when they need it. Right. So what was the, um, what was it like literally leaving the air conditioned office building and showing up at EOD? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> hmm. it was awesome first of all uh i have i have a story that i probably can't tell here um <laughs> about literally walking up to the door uh at at when i reported to the the command i so basically um 
I'm like, I'm in khakis, right? Because that's what I was told to report. And my, the guy I relieved told me to report in and I, you know, call, you can't have your phone in there. So I call and, uh, call him and tell him I'm in the parking lot. I'm walking up and he sees so like, yeah, I'll meet you at the front door. Um, and we had, so at, at 11, we had our, our, um, main head battalion headquarters. We were on, uh, Imperial beach. Oh, okay. Right? okay. So I know exactly like where down, you were yeah, yeah, exactly. Down the street from, from Coronado. But we basically had like the whole base to ourselves at that yep. time. They're moving NSW down there now, but, um, it was us and Rivron. Um, so you, oh, the, that's right. You guys were an ALF. <laughs> Imperial Beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I'd be able to yeah, some select these on that base. we had our huge... What's that? No, oh, I said I've uh, I've yelled at some selectees going through the chief's thing. Because uh, <laughs> a, a buddy of mine was with Riveron, and I flew out there specifically to go to a few of his events. Really? So, yeah. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> this is a great base. God, I loved, I loved being at that base. Um, but we had a huge warehouse that we'd turned into our gym. And so, you know, we didn't, we didn't really, the, the work day didn't really start until zero nine um, because everyone was PTing before that, which was like perfect for me. Right. Because I was training for Ironman. Um, and I had, was coming from big Intel center where the workday started at like four 30. Um, and it didn't end until like, you know, 20 hundred if I was lucky a lot of times, oh. but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm over-exaggerating a little bit, but it's, it's, Intel's a very early community. So I'm walking up to the front door and this guy in PT gear, Oh, Hey man, you must be our, our new Intel officer. Um, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, come on, I'll, I'll, I'll show you around. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm meeting my relief. You know, I don't want to like, cause I didn't have my phone. I didn't want to like, and I didn't know what the building looked like. Um, so I didn't want to like miss him. And he was like, no, 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 it's all right. We can't miss him. So we get to the front door and there's this big sign on it that says like restricted area, right? No, we can't have your cell phone in here. He's got a cell phone in his hands and I do not because I'm the Intel officer. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, he looks at, looks at the, the door, looks at his phone, looks at me, looks at his phone. And mind you, I'm coming in, I'm taking over as the SSO too, because they give, they give the Intel officer all the security related jobs. And uh, he's like, oh yeah, ma'am, don't worry about that. We don't actually pay any attention to that. (laughs) (laughs) That was like the moment where I uh oh and there's kelly again oh <laughs> now i got i got you you laughing so no do you know that's I, I hate to say it that's uh that world um but the recon guys were the same he was way over exaggerating a little bit he was trying to give me a freaking heart attack that's what was happening oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. what was happening with i you. was yeah. like I'm going to go to jail here. I'm going to go to jail at this command. <laughs> is, is that something that they embed in your guys's head uh, at OCS? I don't know how many officers have told me, Doc, you better make sure that, uh, that I don't go to jail for this. I'm like, what? Probably. 
Like, is that like somewhere at OCS? Like literally my one job was to keep my boss out of jail. (laughs) But seriously, I'm not joking on that. That's like what everyone says. My one job, keep me out of jail. Don't get me in jail. It's like, I think they might... They have to pump it in the room in the middle of the night, just slow, like slow away. <laughs> You're going to go to jail. Thing. You're going go to go to jail. Well, you know, it's like, it's the, what, oh, there's a phrase for it. I was just talking with one of my mentor coaches, because I coach now too. Uh, I coach triathletes um, on top of my day job, but I was talking with him yesterday. There is a phrase for that, but it's, you know, it doesn't matter if... It, it, one of the really cool things about leadership in the Navy is the amount of responsibility that is placed on your shoulders from the start and the, and, and the amount of, um, responsibility that is placed on a commander's shoulders, right? Like if a, if a ship runs ashore, no matter who was on the bridge at the time, right? No matter what happened, that CEO is getting, is going to be the one that gets relieved, right? Because that whole crew, everything from their health and well-being to their training was on his shoulders, yeah, right? I mean, it was at, his the, or her responsibility. Look at the Fitzgerald and the McCain. Um, ultimately, the people who got fired were the CEO, the XO, the CMC. And, and, but, and so that's... Even though that they weren't on watch... But right. right, rightfully. So I, it's one of the reasons why I try to explain to people Navy medicine is so much different than Army and Air Force medicine. Because when you're on a ship out in the middle of the sea, I don't care if there's a battle group around you. If you take a hit, it's not you're like it. you can go pull alongside another ship and yeah. jump on and off. You you have to be self-sustaining. Yeah. And that's, that's what makes, like you said, Navy leadership so much different than other branches. I think yeah, the closest decentralized thing is the command. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly what I was just going to hit on. I don't know. I don't know if you've read it yet, but right now I'm, I love audible. So I'm listening to general Mattis's memoir, call sign chaos. I have and, not read it. Oh my gosh. If there's one recommendation I can, I can make it is a, uh, well, I mean, he's, he's, he's like my hero, like for so many of us, but, um, it is a great book and he hits a lot on decentralized command and the importance of decentralized command and training your people and then trusting them to do their jobs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think in the civilian world, I'm a, I'm a government civilian now in, in this, this has probably kind of been the hardest thing to transition. Well, there's been a lot of hard things about transitioning out of the Navy, but one of the harder things is not necessarily having leadership that leads similar to how we do in the military, train your people and then trust them Yeah, to and go forth and conquer. I, I think, I think that there's a reason why, and I'm hate to sound cheerleady, but like people like Jocko Wilnick and some of these other famous or infamous SEALs mm-hmm. get paid a lot for their leadership courses because, you know, people want that. And like, I haven't read his book. I bought it for a friend of mine who runs a business. 
his extreme ownership, but those principles are the same things that we, mm-hmm. that we teach new chiefs every year. And I took exactly. it, I, I took it deadly serious when I picked up chief and went through the, the process. That's why even today, right now, there are a bunch of new chief petty officers who were just selected last week that I will be helping training this year. That's awesome. I have, I have not skipped it since 2011. Man. And it's weird because I finally have my dream, a cold season. The, the chief <laughs> season is always, uh, they're the last people to actually be part of the last the they're the trying to remember this right they're the last paid for the fiscal year so like the chiefs who are selected at the top of their uh their rate so when the when the list comes out they're numbered Mm -hmm. one and one usually the first two or three guys are paid september 16th oh right and then the the rest because they become fiscal year so like this will be fiscal year that's the same way it works for the officer corps yeah so I have stayed a hundred percent involved since 2011. And I think that the leadership training that we do for the chiefs that you guys probably do for the officers, though I have met some really shitty officers, no offense. Um, <laughs> they are out there. <laughs> yeah. And on this, on the, in the same fairness, I've met some really bad chiefs too. Yes. But um, by and large, I, I would say, um, I, I mean, I, I, on on both sides, I, I, I would say that, you know, uh, by and large, we all care a lot about our jobs and we wouldn't yeah. be doing them if we didn't. Yeah. And I, the, well, the bad apples are, are the few and far between. Well, and the, the ones that stand out as far as good leaders are the ones who put their people in front of them. Um, right. Knowing, knowing that the success of their people will bring will be looked at as a good thing for them. The, the bad and leaders. The, the success, yeah, the success of the team. Yeah. Yeah. The bad leaders are the ones that don't trust their, their sailors. That's what I've noticed. Right. That they will, right. that, that they don't. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> so back to your EOD <laughs> time. Um, <laughs> so let's, I'm just going to breach the weird question in the room. Female what lieutenant junior grade at this point nope i was a lieutenant at the time okay so female lieutenant full-fledged lieutenant (laughs) coming into as a department head (laughs) wow (laughs) but coming into this unit that is i don't know at that year time whether it was still male dominated or not but eod naval special warfare in general is some pretty big alpha male big personality types can be yeah um how was it going in there as um it was it was great so so for first it, it is still a male dominated field um you know i've been gone for a few years and again i'm not i'm I still have a lot of friends in the EOD community in the Navy EOD community specifically. Um, but you know, I'm not an EOD officer. I'm not an EOD tech. Um, but I got there and there was, it was just me and one other female officer who's an EOD officer. Um, but she was, she was gone at training somewhere, I think for like six months or something. So it was really just me. And then a few months later we had, um, another female, uh, YN report 
Jen Emmons, who's probably the most, the most amazing yeoman the Navy has ever seen. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but so it was just the, the three of us, like we had an entire locker room all to ourselves. It was amazing. We each had our own showers in the locker room. Um, but, <laughs> but I, I learned to announce female on deck because the guys are always like changing their clothes in their freaking cages. And like half it, if I walked into a cage, like there was a good chance someone was, was changing in there. Um, so, or even in, in the, they're just not used to having women around that much. Right. So it was, it wasn't a big deal, but, um, but honestly, like that, that was really the only thing that was that I had to learn as being a female at that, at that command was like, make sure you announce female on deck. Cause I don't want to see any dick, <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> but that was it. Like I was, I was treated as one of the team from like day one. And, um, one of the most professional and intelligent communities I've I've ever had the pleasure of working with. I mean, those guys know, are some of the smartest people in the Navy, hands down, uh, like all, all of them. It doesn't matter, you know, E4 straight out of EOD school all the way up to the CO. Those guys are incredible. They're masters of their job and they are consummate professionals. Um, it really was the, that that command was the highlight of my career. With with my uh, with my Iraq deployment, we we were bait, and I'm just gonna put it straight out there like that. Our whole job for our ta- for our team was bait, but bait so that we could bring EOD out. Mm-hmm. We worked a lot with Marine Corps EOD and some Army. I never had the pleasure of working with Navy EOD, but those guys even look at like in the hierarchy. Apparently, mm-hmm. Navy EOD is the top of the line in terms of uh, ordnance disposal. Yeah. I mean, they're the, as they're the most diverse in, in their warfare capabilities too. You know, they don't just, they don't just um, dispose of explosives. They jump on mines, you know, they literally dive on, on live mines floating in the ocean, um, which, you know, if, if war ever kicks off in the middle East, that's, going to be the one of our number one concerns is is shutting down you know either the Babo Mendev or the Strait of Hormuz so it is a critical capability to maintain um in in our fighting forces but you know every everything from you know fast roping in on a on a building and 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 clearing a clearing a building to to jumping on on mines like they're just so diverse in what they're able to do. And the team that I was with, we had, you know, very, each platoon had their own specialty. So we had a couple NSW platoons who would deploy with the West Coast teams and, and ch- chop in and um, enforce packages under those guys. And then we had um, MCM platoons, my, you know, mine countermeasures, we had carrier platoons. Yeah. So, um, I learned so much with them, um, and, and the importance of, of what they do. It really was just 
a, an amazing time. So and then when we deployed, we, we went out to Bahrain and those guys worked my, my butt off because they were all over the AOR all the time. <laughs> so it sounds like uh, for you, you were with a smaller, you weren't with like the headquarters, you were kind of with the smaller groups of EOD techs. So when it came to training, did you, did they take you out and get you spun up on shooting and having a little fun on the range? Oh yeah. So, um, so I was on the battalion staff, right? So I was, I was with the, um, but we were, we were an S five level command. So our, our CO and our battalion staff were, were in charge of this, the smallest units that were going to be the tip of the spear. Um, or, and that were the tip of the spear. So in order to report, um, I had to go through the same combat training, um, expeditionary combat skills course that the CBs all have to go to, um, in Gulfport, Mississippi. Pretty sure it's Gulfport. Yeah. And, uh, and that was super fun because that was like six weeks of nothing but shooting. So M9, M4, and combat first aid. So that's, you know, where I learned how to put a tourniquet on and all that stuff. Um, I definitely got my platoon lost in the woods. So technically I pass land nav, but everybody on my team knows I did not pass land nav. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Land nav is a bitch. No matter what anyone tells you, there's no easy land. It was awful. It got us all lost in the dark in the woods, and it was cold. And oh yeah, was especially Damn. especially in the woods. Um, I can tell you, I was with the CBs in my first enlistment. We went up to where was it, Fort Hunter Liggett, up in central northern California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, land nav is a bitch, <laughs> but land nav in heavily treed areas is a bigger bitch. Because you have you. no, you, you can't be like that mountain a hundred yards away. Exactly, because you can't see the damn mountain. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I totally feel you on that one. Um, so we, you did your, your expeditionary skills thing. You were at the unit. Did, I have to ask, did they let you play with things that go boom? Yes. Oh, bombs. So I did get to, um, get to go observe demo, uh, at one point, but, but that was it. But no, I, before we were allowed to deploy, we had to call on, on everything. I got to like shoot the 50 cal and the 240 and and everything. It was awesome. (laughs) So what year was that around? Oh, what year did we go? That was 2014, 2015. Okay. So late. Yeah. So you sound like you were ready to go rock and roll with them. Um, right. Rock and roll. My big deployment was Bahrain where we lived in a villa and ordered Talibat for dinner. So it (laughs) didn't get that exciting. It didn't get that Um, exciting. (laughs) But in reality, my teams were all, all over the place. So I, I worked a lot in, in that, in that job. You know, I, me and my, me and my guy, my Intel guys stayed in Bahrain and, and supported, um, from there. But yeah, it was a busy time. So I'm trying to ask this in a way that you can actually tell me. Um, 
without like going into depth, but what was, so you're in Bahrain, you're supplying Intel to the guys that are actually out in whatever country they're doing their thing in the AOR. The collections to the to the target packaging to the getting that out there. How was that like? How was your typical day? So um, more of what I did was getting ready, getting them ready to go wherever they were going, um, and then debriefing them when they got back. If something big was going down while they were there, um, I would have to find a way to communicate with communicate that with them. Um, but overall, um, you know, the bulk of our work was before they left and when they got back and then keeping the boss informed of what was going on near them, um, while, while they were out. Um, so we weren't, we weren't running, like we weren't kicking indoors. The guys that were kicking indoors, um, were chopped in under whatever, uh, whatever um, command. Yeah. NSW command was out in, um, you know, Iraq and Syria at that time. Um, and we had very little comms with them because they were supported by that Intel infrastructure. Um, but so typical day was getting, getting into work somewhere between like six and seven, doing all the research of all of the reporting that had come in overnight, um, you know, and very, you know, keenly understanding like where our guys were or where our guys were getting ready to go. Um, giving the morning brief either just to the CEO, XO, OPSO, um, or to the, a couple of days a week, we met with all, all the khakis got were got into a room together. Um, so giving them that, um, update brief and then the rest of the day was like, so I was also the N6. Um, so I, I oversaw the, the comms guys as well, but you know, basically they told me what they needed and I did my best to help them get it. Like, yeah. And, and they told me what needed to happen. And I was like, yes, okay, got it. (laughs) Um, but so I, I'd be dealing with, you know, admin stuff from that regard. Um, and then again, all of the research and everything that went into getting the, getting briefs ready for whoever was headed wherever they were headed, um, and debriefing when they came back. So that's something that is unique, I think to, well, yeah, that, that part, I can't really, what I, I yeah. can't really oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. what I was thinking, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, were you still while you were in Bahrain training for, uh, your Ironman stuff? Yes. Yeah. Actually I was training very hard, um, while I was out there cause I, I qualified for the world championships before we went. So I, again, weird question with what your career field was. I, I'm curious, did you, I mean, world championships for Ironman's a pretty high profile thing. Did, it's hard did, to qualify. That's for sure. <laughs> did, did the Navy ever have to get involved and say like, uh, did you have to clear it because you're, you know, you're uh, until no. Owen. <laughs> No, not from that regard. Um, I did have to 
ask the um, WTC, the World Triathlon Corporation, is the one who runs all things Ironman. They're like the rule, the governing body. Uh, I had to ask them to roll my spots because normally they won't. If you don't race the year you qualify, guess what? You have to qualify again. Um, but I had deployed the year that I qualified. So I had to ask them to roll my spot to the following year so that I could hopefully go. And that is the one reason that the WTC, at least they used to agree to, to roll spots for the world championships was for a military deployment. So how many, uh, how many people actually had to do that twice? Ooh, how many people mm-hmm. uh, get to qualify per year? For the championships? Uh, less than about 2,500. 20, oh, about wow. 2,500 out of probably like 200,000 200, or more that um, that race Ironman throughout the year. Yeah. That's crazy. So um, trying to figure out how to breach this next subject, something changed <laughs> at some point in time. And I think you told me it was when you were out there in Bahrain. I could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was actually my second tour, my second pump out there. Um, so after I left Mobile Unit 11, I took orders to um, the to NavSent headquarters, which is also in Bahrain. And uh, while I was out there, so I, after after deployment, went home, raced Kona, um, did okay, didn't do as well as I had hoped. Um, but right before I raced, I qualified a second time. So raced Kona, got back from that, went back to Damnick for a few weeks for more training, and then went, went back out to the Middle East. Um, and while I was out there, I was again training for my second run now at, at the World Championships. And I had a big cycling, cycling wreck. And yeah, it, that was the wreck. That was in January 2018 that changed my life. Changed, changed everything. So let's transition toward your athletic background. What made you get into triathlons? Um, remember I said I was a paddler. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's, I had wanted to do the Ironman world championships from the time I was about 14 years old. Um, I heard about this crazy race on the big Island from this lady that I totally looked up to. She was a, she was also a paddler. She was a long distance paddler and she had the M dot, that little Ironman symbol tattooed. And I asked her about it. She told me about this race and I was like, Oh my gosh. Like I thought she was so cool. She was a fireman. She was just ripped so strong, so smart so fast in a canoe and I like looked up to her so much and she told me about that race and I was like I'm gonna do that race one day it was my bucket list it was like the pinnacle of my bucket list um and then I I did I I did get to race it so that's that's awesome it was I started to get a little bit greedy though and then I wanted to win the military division and I was like I want that cobol you know and that was my goal for round two um but yeah, I had that that big crash in 2018 and now I'm trying to start racing again. <laughs> so with that, um you got into the crash and like you said you're now a government employee. So 
do you want to tell us what happened in how you went uh, from Lieutenant Ryan to Ms. Ryan or Ms. Ryan or however <laughs> you say it, whatever is politically correct now? <laughs> or Kelly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I spent, I had the big crash in Bahrain. Um, very long story short, uh, had a, very a long surgery or long. two. Yeah. <laughs> I had, um, I had screws put in my neck while I was, while I was still out there. I had to have my wrist completely like repaired. Um, and ultimately the, the repair that they did on the day of my crash, it was insufficient. My wrist had been, it was almost a compound fracture. So the radius had almost gone through the front of my hand and it shattered and everything was dislocated and torn and all that good stuff. So, um, I had to get put on limb do, which was devastating. Um, cause if I, if I say EOD was the pinnacle of my career, um, the job they'd put me in at NAVSENT was, was the next step. You know, I was perfect for that job. I was a, the lead counterterrorism um, analyst there. And I had, I had been basically like training myself for that job for years and I loved it. And I had an amazing team and we were really doing important and good work. Um, and it, and I was, I was pretty devastated that, um, I had to get pulled out of that because I was out training, um, you know, just out playing. And what I, I'm not sure if I had shared with you in the past, but, uh, uh, just a couple months before that wreck, um, one of my, one of my sailors, um, from mobile unit 11, was in Syria and had, um, gotten hit really badly. And, uh, and, um, I, in the job that I was in at NAVSENT, I was still very much in the like Intel kind of chain of command there. And so I took that really, really hard. I still, I still deal dealing with that. Um, but I, you know, was training and had, and had to leave, leave that job. Um, and, you know, basically it, like in my, in my head and like the survivor's guilt kind of loop that, that we deal with sometimes was like really beating myself up for, um, having to leave the team because I was out playing essentially, and so I spent two years at Walter Reed dealing with all of that and a traumatic brain injury. And then ultimately, um, they medically retired me out of the Navy as a result of direct results of the crash. And, um, now I work for the state department as a government civilian. <laughs> so, um, how did you feel about your medical care, especially the TBI side? Cause I know all of us who've gone through the TBI thing and, have different feelings on it. And I think it's also, Mm -hmm. it's also in fairness to the system. When I went through with my TBI was in the early days of them even discussing that word. Right. Versus, uh, versus Jules, who was 2015, 16 versus you 2018. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. There's, and, um, I think, uh, oh, can you still hear me? I can hear you. I can see you. I can see you. There we go. Um, sorry about that. The, uh, we are still very much the medical community and I'm not, I'm not in the medical community. So maybe I'm being a hypocrite saying this, but, um, or hypocrites, the wrong word. Sorry. I digress. Um, medicine still doesn't barely knows anything about the brain. Right. Right. So to answer your question, um, I am, I still am struggling, uh, with, with getting out ad- of adequate medical care from the TBI perspective. Um, the, uh, no, no medical professional even looked at my, my head after the crash. Granted, I was in a foreign hospital, a foreign country. Um, but not even any of the, any of the Navy docs at, um, at the clinic looked even like TBI wasn't even something that they thought of. Even my, my helmet was, yeah. Um, so it was six months. I had been back at Walter. I'd been back in country at Walter Reed for several months at this point. It was six months after my crash. It, It was one of my EOD chiefs, my previous EOD chiefs, who is still a very good friend of mine called me and to check in on me and see how I was doing. And he was like, Kelly, something is not right. Like have you, have you, have you, uh, been evaluated for a TBI? And I was like, Oh my gosh. Like we go through all of this training, right. Especially being with a command, like an EOD unit, like we know the signs to look for, for TBI. And it, made so much sense. I was having, I was having anger issues. This was what, this was something that was really, really difficult for me. Right. All of a sudden I was having these anger issues. Like I was getting crazy angry, like so angry over the dumbest things. And what I now realize is it was a communication barrier. I was having a, I couldn't get words that I was trying to say out because my brain was scrambled. And so I would get frustrated and mad and I wouldn't understand why. Um, And, you know, it just, it continued. I am now diagnosed with something called post-concussion syndrome because apparently maybe I've had a few of these over the years. Um, But, you know, uh, vestibular migraines became a thing. And because they were not like the stereotypical blinding headache, my migraines, they, they went a full year, not diagnosed until I did get one of these like blinding headache migraines. And it still took months for, um, for, for that to get diagnosed. Um, and yeah, I, the, one of the, apparently, you know, the, the military's premier brain injury center, I've had phrases said to me and premier brain injury center. Most of what they see are special operators, um, EOD and NSW Rangers, et cetera, literally had a neurologist there say, well, your brain doesn't look nearly as bad as, 
as most of the seals I treat. And so that just goes to show, right? Like, oh, okay. My brain may not be nearly as bad as his, but it's bad, but there's still an issue. Yeah. That doesn't mean I don't warrant care. Right. But like right. when you're alone and unafraid, like that's not what that's not an, and dealing with a brain injury, that's not how I was able to communicate. So it's been a frustrating process and it's definitely something that I'm, I'm still dealing with today. Did you go through NICO? Yes. Okay. And I'm going to make an assumption blindly. Now, don't get me wrong. Notice a little flag back there. I love the <laughs> Navy. I love everything about the Navy, but we are not good at once you get hurt or wounded and you can't do your job and you're put on limb do, you are suddenly not the most important thing to the Oh, fleet. oh wait. Yeah. Um, and it, that is how I felt for a while. Um, yeah, I was pulled out of a command where I was doing, I was, my team and I were doing really important work and I was plopped. I was attached to a command that it didn't know me at all. And then they never saw me ever because I was at Walter Reed all the time. So here I am a Lieutenant up for Oh four. I've always been a high performer. I've I've always worked my butt off, but these, these people that are now in charge of me, these people, my command that is now in charge of me thinks that I'm just like a sandbagger, you know, because they've never seen me do a day's work. Yeah. Right. And Little do they know I'm like being held together by, you know, bailing twine and, and duct tape. Yeah. Um, and you and know, it took a while before that stopped. I don't want to say it's a good thing hearing this from you because it's not, but there is a lot of uh, like, this is very common in the enlisted side. Be it, I knew senior chiefs all the way down to E2s that were, that were, you know, stellar performers who then got sent to, in my case, NAS San Antonio, because that was the nearest uh, Navy unit at the time attached yeah. to Bamsey, who didn't have eyes on me yeah and therefore like how do we reach you against our people well you shouldn't be reading yeah. against your people exactly and saying i i'm a, i'll make the assumption you weren't directly assigned to an intel world either i was i was assigned to oh wait that's right you're in dc headquarters Never yeah mind. they yeah. and that was that was the reason they assigned me there was to that my detailer put me there was to hopefully not let the fact that I got hurt ruin my career because I was in zone for Oh four. Um, but they, um, you know, we, we didn't know, we didn't know at the time that I was literally going to be like, at Walter Reed all day, every day. We thought, you know, everybody was like, oh, it's just a broken wrist. Like, go have your, go have your second surgery and then get back to work. Right. And that's not what ended up being the case at all. It was so much more than just a broken, just a broken wrist. I was in occupational therapy every day just to try to get my fingers to move again because they had frozen solid completely. Um, and physical therapy. And then I ended up in vision therapy and vestibular therapy and all, all the therapies, um, you know, cog cognitive behavioral therapy, um, ultimately too, which I still 
I still talk to a therapist once a week to this day. Which is important. I, I, is. I do think it is. So let's get to how you and I met which um, somewhere way, along the line, way more fun story. <laughs> well, well, I, I, and I, I don't mean to be down on this because I, I do think it's important for people to understand what, how everything tied together. But at some point in time, you were introduced to Navy Safe Harbor Wounded Warrior Program. That's how correct. did, how did that go? How did you find out about them or them find out about you? Uh, <laughs> honestly, it was another, and, and, a lot of this goes back to, I was not medevaced out of Bahrain. I was PCS. I was put on Limdu and PCS. And so Navy Wounded Warrior didn't even know I existed for a good, like almost a over six months of the time that I was at Walter Reed, kind of the time where I really needed support because I wasn't medevaced. That support wasn't there. Um, but ultimately I ran into an issue with my command and I had screws and things sticking out of my arm and I was barely getting myself to the hospital and to therapy every day and home alive um, because I was on pain meds and all of these, all of this stuff. Um, I had an issue with my command and I put a post out with the female, there's, a Facebook group of female naval officers. And most of us, a huge amount of us are on there um, all the way from retirees to brand new ensigns. And it's a great resource. It has been for um, a good amount of time. So I put a post up there and said, you know, my command is saying that they're not going to, they're not going to approve my second, um, my second round of con leave. And like, I can't, I can barely get to the hospital every day and home safely. Like I can't, I can't then drive all the way down to um, this command that was even, it was further South than DC um, as well. And they chime, a bunch of people chimed in, but somebody came on and said, well, well, you need to talk to Navy safe Harbor. They'll be able to help you. And that was the first time I'd heard of Navy safe Harbor. So they, at that point, I went to them and I was like, they, you know, somebody told me you can help me. This is what's going on. And that's when I got enrolled in the, in their program. Um, and, and yeah, it's been a great experience. It's been a great experience since and, um, getting to do, you know, the camps for warrior games and, and everything. So let's talk has about been hu a huge. Go yeah. 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 I mean, so I haven't gotten to do warrior games, as you know. Um, but we met, I think we were at a couple the, of camps together, weren't we? Just the January one. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I got to do two camps in 2020 and uh, amazing, such an amazing experience. Um, right. Just getting to come together with all of the other um, all of our other Navy wounded warriors and realize that we're not going, we're not going through this alone. Right? right. And we do have each other. Cause this, this whole limb do being in limbo process can be really, really lonely at one of the most 
difficult parts for a lot of people of their lives. Definitely. So you, you were out there in Port Wainimi with us. I think we were out there for like, what, 10 days or something like that. Yep. Um, pre COVID days at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I saw you get on the bike um, and you were talking with our coach, Greta. Mm-hmm. You kind of lit up. How did, was that your first time back on a bike or had you been on a bike a lot? Um, so I, I've been on a, on a bike a lot, right? Like, I mean, but uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, but post crash, um, from 2018, I was not, it wasn't until early, late 2019, early 2020, when things started to get back to a point where, um, I was able, and even late, later than later than that, able to get on the bike more consistently. Um, so for my balance is one of my biggest challenges. Um, my, the TBI kind of screwed up the vestibular system and my eyes apparently don't talk to each other as well as efficiently as they're supposed to. So I have a lot of movement processing and, and balance challenges. So, and then on top of that, my forearm for over a year, I couldn't put it on a, on a handlebar, um, put my hand on a handlebar. So yeah, it, I spent, two and a half plus years, really not able to get on a, on a bike on the road. I I have a indoor train, a fancy indoor trainer, and I spent countless hours on that, but, um, not able to get out on the road to my happy place because it, it wasn't safe. Um, so yeah, I, I let, I pretty much light up anytime there's a bike involved. I think I'm a total (laughs) bike nerd. But so what was it like working with, uh, our coach Greta and, uh, having her she she's a special coach she'd like really really there's three coaches i can think of that just pour their heart and soul in it and i don't think any of yeah. those three that i'm thinking of served um but yeah interesting uh greta so greta is actually coaching me um on a on like the regular now like she's she's my my cycling coach um on the daily so um, I'm hoping to get classified as a paracyclist, um, in April and, uh, maybe qualify for the cycling world cup, um, next year. But Greta is so down to earth. Um, and she really does seem to understand kind of what we're, what we're dealing with. Right. Right. And, um, add to that, you know, she's a total bike nerd too. And, and we definitely just kind of like see eye to eye on all the things. (laughs) Definitely. So was, was getting into adaptive sports, what you, did you have any preconceived ideas of what it was? No, I, um, so adaptive sports in general or warrior warrior games, both. So, I 
have, so I struggled with this, like my time at Walter Reed, I kind of felt like I was this like, oh, you're, you're hurt, but you're like, you're not quite hurt enough, right? Like you're not quite injured enough. So I deal with this, I'm sure you've heard the term invisible injuries Oh yeah, yeah. kind of syndrome or conundrum. So there's a little bit of like an emotional aspect of it um, for, for me too. Like there's a little bit of a feeling like maybe I don't deserve to be here. Like maybe I don't deserve to be here. Maybe I don't deserve these accommodations. Um, but that's, that's a, that's probably a weakness that, that I have and, um, kind of something that I need to deal with, um, on my own because what has been really amazing is to learn about what is possible. Right. And so I'm now a para, I I'm a triathlon coach, but I'm also now a USA triathlon uh, para triathlon certified coach. And that has been just being around all of the adaptive sports and, um, the adaptive athletics for Navy wounded warrior, um, and seeing all of the, the different ways that we can keep people involved and engaged and active and still leading fulfilling lives and doing things that bring them joy has been, um, has been amazing, you know, opened so many doors for me and for others. I I know it's changed a lot of people um, that I've met through the programs. Mm -hmm. And I'm, like I said, I'm glad you were there. So outside of cycling, what else did you try? Um, let's see archery, which I totally fell in love with, um, archery, swimming, track, um, cycling and rowing is my other big one. So I think, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't develop a really good relationship with our coach for rowing, considering her husband's an an EOD chief. Where are, yeah, we're... We're friends for sure. Yeah. yeah. I think he just got home from that same deployment I was on. Oh, wow. Damn. Yeah. So you, um, so as you're going forward with the, trying to get back into triathlete triathlons and so forth, are you pursuing it through the adaptive side or are you going to pursue it through the non-adaptive side? Um, right now. So in, Late 20 in 2019, I raced at the para triathlon national championships. Um, but the way classifications work, uh, apparently they didn't, they didn't find me, um, classifiable in triathlon there. There was a lot of gaps left on the documentations that my medical providers gave as well though. So I think that that may be up for consideration in the future, but, um, cycling is completely different and has different classifications. So right now I am, um, training for a big race in Huntsville, Alabama in April, where I will go through national classification um, and, and potentially be classified, um, as either, well, I'm not sure I'm the, the plan is hopefully to be classified as a paracyclist in April 
And then we'll see where that goes from there. Do you have ambitions for Paralympics? If I get classified, absolutely. Yeah. If I get classified, I think all bets are going to be all my, my whole focus is going to be going to 2024 for sure. <laughs> That's right. Cause 2020s now moved to 2021, right? Right. Tokyo. And then 24 should be, I believe it's Paris. No, you can't go to Paris. No. Yes, no, no, I no. can. <laughs> so do you plan on continuing um, with the Navy Adaptive Sports Program? Absolutely. If they'll have me without a doubt. Yeah, I got to I only got to do um, two camps last year. So I've never been to Warrior Games and just being around everybody at the camps and getting to getting to know and hang out with other um other wounded warriors with, with backgrounds, similar backgrounds is, is priceless. I mean, it really, really changed the trajectory of my recovery. And I would love to have the opportunity to race, to, to go to warrior games and get that experience and maybe even, um, try to qualify for Invictus games in the future. Well, I think if you, if you make warrior games, um, you you will have a very high probability of probably being looked at for Invictus just just because of your your athleticism um, you're someone <laughs> that would stand out I think. Hopefully, I know you you have to you have to stand out at more than one sport though. Yeah, I know. Well, you got two of them: cycling and swimming. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and in some ways, I'm kind of glad that they canned uh the warrior games this year i knew early on i think i I knew in in april after everything started changing about uh the trials Mm -hmm. that the trajectory that we were on i told megan to pull me off the list because i just had a feeling that they weren't going to happen this year yeah uh, back then and i think if they would have had a scaled back version without family and without uh an audience (sighs) i it wouldn't have been the same. Yeah, you wouldn't have had the the come. I don't think you would have had the same tightness that we had. And then you, there was something about competing with the the international athletes too. Um, yeah, that you bond with, and obviously they wouldn't have been here. So, my advice to everyone has always been: take this year as a look at your training and yeah, make sure you're doing. Because we should all who want to compete uh, in 2021 or 2022 mm-hmm. should be able to go back and have no reason why we haven't had this year to get better, stronger. faster, stronger yeah. here. Um, yeah. So speaking of 2020, how has your 2020 been outside of the, the Warrior Games? Insane. <laughs> um, a little bit crazy. So I was retired in April. Uh COVID kicked off in March. That was very stressful, right? I didn't know if I was going to have a job. Um, I had an internship at the State Department, but I didn't know if if that was, you know, going to ever actually come to fruition, especially once COVID kicked off. Um, ultimately, it did, thankfully. Um, and, you know, I've, st- I've started that job. Um been moved to a pretty uh, uh, high op tempo portfolio that has me pretty busy. Um, but other than that, you know, just 
continuing to, to try to keep my nose to the grindstone, both at, from work and, and training. My, my daughter is overseas with her dad, um, right now. So I'm having, oops, my phone is going to die soon. Um, but I'm having to, uh, I, I haven't gotten to see her since COVID started since they, since she left for the, for Europe. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So that's, I, I mean, I've been focusing, uh, you know, I've been keeping myself busy for sure, but that's a big goal of mine for 20 early 2021. Hopefully I'm praying COVID will let me get out there to see her or have her come here. Uh, cause it's been hard. Well, the good thing have, is not have her part of my life. I, I, like, I would love to be doing the show in person with everyone who's coming on, but at least these technologies exist. So you can actually see people, which I think is, is good. It just, yeah, I'd much rather be face to face with someone than talking across the internet. And it's been a good forcing mechanism for us to, to get on zoom and stuff. Yeah. So how, uh, how has the DC area been through all of this? Tense. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a little tense here. Granted, I'm kind of a new DC transplant. It's, I'm only now kind of starting to ha- have it feel like home. But, um, you know, between everything that happened earlier in the year with the riots and then the election and then COVID and now COVID kind of coming back around, and people are very worried in, in, in this area and are, you know, people are doing good, you know, wearing masks and socially distancing and businesses are very responsible for, from what I can tell, but it's, it's been tense in, in the nation's capital. It's, it feels like. So do you, is your job requiring you to drive in every day? No, mm-mm. it's difficult because we can't do much from home. So the, the days of we're on kind of small teams. So we, we each have our teams and we go in as a team on one or two days a week. And, uh, um, that way, like if one team goes down, the whole office hasn't gone down. Um, but it's been hard because that basically means I'm trying to do a week's worth of work like in one day uh, or two days or something, which is hard, really hard. Well, no reason for you not to be training harder, Kelly. Exactly. <laughs> Point taken. How is it? So are like, are gyms open out there? Um, some are, yeah, I have my, I have all of my stuff at home in my house though. Oh, okay. Um, and that's not totally like, like that. I, so I have like my nice trainer and stuff for my bike and everything. And I, and I always have so that, but I definitely like, I got an erg, a rowing erg when COVID kicked off. Cause I was like, I'm training for warrior games. Like I need an erg. <laughs> But so now I, my home gym has been plussed up a little bit for sure. Nice. Nice. I know. I know there's, it's crazy. I was, uh, I don't know if you guys have them out there, but in Florida, they were pretty predominant academies. They're, um, sporting goods stores. Mm -hmm. Um, I was actually there earlier today before we got on this, but about two weeks ago I was there and they were still out of bikes and out of weights. Yeah. It's so bizarre that those two things are off the shelves today yeah. they had a bunch of bikes but i don't think they got very many of the the weights back yet 
Yeah. And it's like the small stuff that you're like going, wait, why, why is it taking seven, eight months? I know. To, to replenish metal. <laughs> <laughs> but, Come on, guys. Yeah. So what would you tell um, young girls who have gone through, you know, TBI stuff who were athletes? Um, don't take no for an answer. If you know something's not right, something is not right. And um, women are treated differently sometimes in the medical community. And I know it's not just me and I know it's not just that, um, you know, military medical center. Uh, but a lot of times when you can't put your finger on something, um, for, if it's a female, they get told, well, it's all in your head, you know, or they're treated like it's all in their head or, Oh, it's anxiety. Um, like it's that, and that's not always the case. Um, in fact, a lot of times it's, it's not, and, you know, so I, I feel like I, I had to fight, I had to fight for my care. Um, especially when it was something that like a vis vestibular migraines, they were like, it's all in your head. You're imagining this. I was definitely not imagining it. Um, you're, you feel you're losing your balance because you're too stressed. No, that was not the case. Um, yeah, don't take no for an answer. You know your body, and that goes for men and men and women alike. Um, you know, because I I think you you've been part of the military healthcare system. You know what it's like. Yeah, I was the military healthcare system, which is a weird way of putting it. But yeah, I mean, as a corpsman, we were kind of the forefront on the Navy side of the healthcare system. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I am mm -hmm. literally ten minutes away from core school. I'll, you know, so it I know was a corpsman. It was a Navy corpsman who found who found my who found my neck, and I had been to doctors for years about my neck, uh, but it was it was a Navy Navy corpsman. Yeah, it, HM one. Well, he's kind of a corpsman. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I won't um, tell him you said that. <laughs> oh, he'll probably see it. No, but yeah. <laughs> so speaking of the military healthcare system, how has your treatment been since you've been out have you been staying in the military side or have you been using civilian i've used a, a little bit so when i got out COVID had already started and telehealth was starting um and i i've i feel like i've spoken you know harsh on military medicine but i've also had some really great care at walter reed um I did give the VA here a chance though. And it's been mostly all telehealth since I retired um, and have been very pleasantly surprised. I've gotten right. some really, really great care so far at, at the VA. Um, so for everything we see in the news, um, at least from my experience thus far, um, it does seem like the Veterans Administration is making efforts to improve, um, yeah. improve itself. So I really haven't myself ventured into the VA. A um, little paranoid about them. You I don't blame me, you. You made me feel a little bit better. But that being yeah. said, <laughs> here in San Antonio, this is a huge medical community, and uh -huh. I will tell you, I like like you, kind of bash military healthcare system a little bit. Um, 
especially here because they have weird rules like the brain injury clinic will only see active duty independents will not see retirees <laughs> don't ask me why um, and dependents yeah that makes no sense i i don't <laughs> yeah um but that being said i have not found civilian healthcare uh professionals that really understand TBI as well as the military. Because really? yeah. we're, we're talking about blast injury in my case versus uh, a high school kid who got a concussion. Mm-hmm. So it's very like different. Two, two completely different things. And so they want to treat everything like concussion. So I will give the military healthcare system credit there. Credit where, yeah, definitely yeah. credit where credit is due. Yeah. And, so, you know, the person who ultimately diagnosed my apparently very difficult to diagnose vestibular challenges um, was, was a army doctor, army neurologist. So, you know, yeah. say, say what we will. And we have today said about some of the shortcomings we've faced in the military healthcare system. There are positives. Oh, there, there's big it as well, though. Yeah. And there are a lot and of, yeah. General practice. It's stuff. easy to talk it. about all the bad things. Yeah, exactly. The last part that I'm going or the last question I'm going to ask you on this note is when we're all said and done, we're back on. Am I going to see you at the team trials in 2021 if it's live? Yes. Good. Hopefully, I mean, not- as long as they accept me, but yes, I plan I, I, to be there. I think they will. Are you going to do the virtual December camp? Uh, I did put in for it. Yeah. Yeah. I got to get off my butt and actually fill out the paperwork. Get it done. It's like, uh-huh. it's so easy. It's one piece of paper. Oh yeah. Uh, I in it's track. So I got to go talk to coach Kyle. Yes. Which is the other coach I was talking about. Are you doing track? I'll be doing track. Yeah, for sure. Are you going to, are you going to start running again? I need to get my act together. I've been focusing so much on the bike, but yes, I'm going to start running again. Okay. I'm going to hold you to that. (laughs) So the the last part of this is I call this show after the battle campfire because I go back to, I'm a huge, stupid, nerdy military buff and back before airplanes and large ships, when we went on campaign, you would kind of camp after the day Uh and you know, you would gather around the campfire and people, you know, they would talk shit for what they did. More stories. Yeah. Yeah. So how has this helped you or has, how, how, how do you feel about telling your story? Um, I hope that it helps someone else. Good. Right. I, yeah. I hope, I, I hope that, um, that talking about some of the stuff that I've had to deal with and hopefully, you know, making experiences that I've had known can, can, even if it's just one person, even if it's just one, one female that is, is being told there's nothing wrong with her being, you know, that she didn't really like, it's been more than six months. So she doesn't have a TBI anymore. Like, um, cause that's another thing I was told frequently. Uh, even if it's just one person, it, it would, it would, make that much of a difference in that one person's life. So I hope it helps someone else. I think it will. I mean, you, you have a, you have a very, very unique background um, in terms of being the closest thing I would know to a semi-pro athlete (laughs) serving and going through what you went through and coming back. 
So trying to come back, still trying to make my comeback. Every I, day is a comeback, right? You 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 have come back. Maybe not to where you were before, but definitely you have come back and in different from, ways too. Yeah, you've come you've come back from where you could have gone. I know you that learned, sounds like yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that we've we've come a long ways. Let's let's put it there. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, the Modern Ronin, on Twitter at Tommy Chase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.